This is Alex Pearson. A good morning to you. A loud morning. Yeah, it was a... Got a lot of good thunder boomers today. Haven't heard a good storm like that. Toronto never gets good storms, so I was actually quite impressed to wake up to that. Because uh, I like a good thunderstorm. My headaches don't, and I'm like, why is it so cold? It was so warm, and now it's, yeah. We're going up and down all day, and apparently this is going to be the show. So, uh, enjoy. Great to have you here. We've got a busy day. Yes, I'll talk about Donald Trump. This is the last day I'm going to talk about Donald Trump, okay? Three days for me is torture. I, I don't consider myself a Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not obsessed with this guy. I don't talk about him all the time. I figure I'll let the American networks do that because, oh, yeah, I live in Canada. I'm going to focus on all the corruption and bad behavior here. So I'll talk about it today, but I don't plan on talking about this every day because I hate talking about things that you can't even have a rational discussion on. So for all those people asking, aren't you going to talk about Trump? No, if you've known my show, I don't talk about him because I don't need to. I'll watch American networks for that. If only everyone here would focus on what's going on in this country, maybe we could, I don't know, hold some of the people accountable. But I'll continue doing that. All right, we've got a busy, busy show. I want to kick things off talking about guilty pleas because some of them should not be accepted. And I think it includes a plea entered by a guy who ripped off Ontario taxpayers to the tune of $47 million. You might have heard about this in the news, but uh, Sanjay Madden, who is an IT expert at Queen's Park, has in fact pleaded guilty to six counts fraud, breach of trust, and money laundering. So he admits he stole over $10 bucks in COVID relief funds. And then... Feeling very honest, he decided to admit, oh, yeah, I stole an additional $36.6 bucks as part of this very elaborate fee-for-service computer scheme that he started back in 2010 under the McKinsey uh, Wynn government. So he has been doing this for a long time. And part of the deal includes having his uh, the charges against his wife dropped as well because she, too, worked as a computer expert at Queen's Park, as did their two sons, a family affair. Um, and her charges were dropped, and the sons, well, they were never charged, but they do all still face a civil suit. So why do they get this deal? I mean, this is a guy who had a very, very secure job, was bringing in a cool $176,000 a year, plus all the other things you get when you have a nice government job, like the pension, the benefits, and, oh, yeah, security. Uh, but his wife also had a great job, making 132000 bucks a year. And her charges haven't dropped, but she's still suing for wrongful dismissal. I mean, that takes some cojones, eh? I read that and I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Wrongful dismissal on allegations you were part of a $47 million theft. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, but that's the world we live in. And so, like, this is not a family that was going hungry. Like, they had some, they had some pretty good money coming into that house, but they wanted more. And the judge, who does have the authority to decline a guilty plea himself, explained that this is an extremely complicated case. He called it a genius-style fraud perpetrated on every person in this province, a crime that went on for 10 years, so complicated that even the auditor general didn't notice money was going missing, millions of dollars. So when she does those value for audit things, yeah, didn't, didn't notice. 47 million bucks was missing because it was that sophisticated. 
And what this guy admits is that he relaxed the security systems on computers during the pandemic so he could steal millions of dollars in support payments that were, according to his plea, easy money. And he was stealing from a program set up to uh, help parents who have kids with special needs get some supports. And because as we have learned, we know that there are no rules or guardrails put into place as we threw uh, billions and billions and billions of dollars out uh, the, the window or out the door. Um, it was easy for people to cheat. So they did. And according to the court records, this guy funneled millions of dollars into all sorts of different bank accounts. And that was just one side of the uh, scam, because he also set up this elaborate scheme to get the $36 million, and he was doing that getting kickbacks on these big contracts that are built by the government and did that over a decade. Skim a little here, take a little there, hey, it adds up. And we know, look, during the pandemic, record theft, up to $32 billion of questionable um, money given out at the federal level alone on the CERB and the emergency wage programs. But we know that fraud losses in this country have uh, gone up to record levels, up 40% since 2022. We have record levels of fraud and cybercrime right across this country. And given the astronomical amount stolen and the sophistication of this case, why would the Crown offer a deal? Why, and why would the judge accept it? It's not like they couldn't build a case. They had the evidence. They just didn't build the case. They took the plea. Not only would hearing this case allow us to learn how it was done, but who else was involved. It's also a perfect case, I think, to send a warning to all the other scammers out there, stealing from everybody, whether it's granny, grandpa, your mother, or your sister, whatever, the taxpayer, that it won't be accepted. It will not be forgiven. And now the message sent is, well, hey, you can make a deal. I mean, fraud is not a victimless crime. It absolutely destroys lives. We've talked about people who had their entire life savings, you know, lost to some person calling, pretending that they were, uh, you know, grandson Jimmy needing money. I mean, we know that scams destroy people. It destroys businesses. Here's a guy who stole because he could, and you think he's the only one doing it? I mean, sure, he's in there making his plea about the shame he brought his family and, oh, my God, I'm going to make it right. And, you know, he was going to pay the money back. How? How are you going to pay back 47 million bucks? <laughs> what kind of job are you going to get next? His wife has no job. They still face a civil suit. How is he going to pay back that money? And when you think of all that money, 47 million bucks and who that could help, I don't know, the food bank comes to mind. Kids who need breakfast programs, all those kids with autism who would have benefited from this program that he was stealing from, drug addiction services, warming centers, TTC safety. I mean, I can make a list as long as this show of where all that money could go. None of these places get that kind of money. Maybe they need to get an IT job at Queens Park or in government because they could just steal it. And keep in mind, this guy was sentenced to 10 years, but you know how our justice system works. If you're a good little boy or girl, you can reduce that thing or end up at a healing lodge or somewhere else, and he'll likely get out. Let's be honest, he'll likely get out in about three to four years. So while the running argument, certainly from his lawyer or from a defense lawyer, because I know they shake their fists at some of the things I say, look, many will say a plea like this is proof of accountability. 
And yeah, sure, it spares the court the cost of a, you know, a lengthy trial, yada, yada, yada. But that's just nonsense. We're talking 47 million bucks. And if it only, what, four or five years, and then your wife has been spared, your kids go on with their life, whatever, wherever the money is, who knows? Some might say, hey, I would do that kind of jail time for that kind of money. Might pay off. So as far as I'm concerned, and I understand that the premier was told about this, but I, I think some cases are worth saying, yeah, no, we don't need a guilty plea on this one because we've got a lot of evidence. And then you say, we'll send a message. Or I don't know, just humor us, the taxpayers who do abide by the laws. Maybe just once, humor us and pretend that you're really going for it, right? But we don't get that. So I know a lot of people, I won't have the popular opinion here. I would not think that a plea deal is necessary. I think if we can get convictions because we have the evidence and we're talking about a really large sum of money, I think it's okay to say, let's go for it. But a lot of times deals are worked out and, um, and they're not always in the interest of you, me, and the public at large. So we will kick the conversation with this because maybe you disagree with me. Should a deal have been made for this crime? Is 10 years or maybe a reduced sentence because he's going to be really good, really well behaved? Is, it lo is that long enough for almost 50 million bucks stolen from us? And you think that it's really the only time this has happened in government? Do you really think that he's the only guy running some kind of scheme like this? Because apparently we don't have guardrails anywhere when it comes to our large sum of money. All righty. If this government wants to save some money, you know, they just need to stop hiring people. That would be a very good idea because when you look at the public sector, in just the two years, in just the past two years, they have increased hiring by 31%. So we're talking 31,000 new public sector employees. I mean, the, the public sector was bloated before, and now it's even more bloated. And, and of course, then we spent another $21 billion hiring these expensive consultants to outsource the work and do the job that we pay all these public service employees to do. It, it makes absolutely no sense. Why are we hiring more public sector employees and then farming out the work? Why are we farming out the work at all? That's why we hire these people to do. And when you look at it, you know, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation went through all the numbers of the 312,000 federal employees. They got at least one raise during the pandemic. And then they got another 559 million bucks in bonuses since the start of the pandemic. And now they're even threatening strike on the 7th of April if they don't get a raise as high as 30% and working out of home. Let me bring in Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, to break down some of this. Thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me on. You know, one of the big savings that they uh, kind of talked about in the budget is uh, it's such a, a, a peanut shell game because they're like, well, we're going to save money by not hiring consultants. And it's like, well, why are you hiring them at all? Like they're not saving us money. They're just stop. They're just not wasting it as much. But it's crazy that it's like being spun as look at all the money we're saving. It's like, well, you pissed it away for years. Yeah, they're not saving any money in the budget. They talk about savings, but when people in the federal government in Ottawa talk about savings, they mean, hey, we didn't buy Rolls Royce, we bought a Lamborghini instead. But that's not saving money. You know, between 2027 and 2022, spending is going up 
by $85 billion, okay? So if you're increasing spending by $85 billion, you're saving money wrong. Yeah, it's crazy. But it's almost like saying, hey, we're going to have a carbon tax, but you're going to make money on it. Just, uh, yeah, it doesn't happen unless, uh, you know, we all turn our lights on and, and leave everything on and we can profit off of a, all that to make um, money on a tax. It doesn't work. Having said that, um, 31,000 new employees were hired. And, and all of this, of course, comes out in, in the uh, parliamentary budget officer's uh, report. So it's not like they can dispute this. This is a nonpartisan uh, position. But even Yves Giroux has said, you know, it's one thing if we're getting money for that. But we're not even getting our money's worth from that because we hired all these people and yet you couldn't get a passport for a year. Airports have been a mess. Uh, government services have not exactly been terrific. No, I mean, way less than that. I mean, that is that is the understatement of the year. I mean, the PBO has also been very clear that government departments consistently fail to meet half of their own targets, their own targets. Can you believe mm-hmm. that, Alex? They can barely meet half of their own targets. Many years they fail to meet half of their own targets. And yet the federal government has turned around during the middle of a pandemic when so many people lost jobs, took cuts, uh, even maybe lost their small business, $559 million of bonuses they handed out. Now in the real world, outside of government, you don't meet half of your targets, what happens? You get shown the door. You don't get given a bonus check. And when Canadian taxpayers are struggling to afford groceries, struggling to afford the price of chicken, the price of a jug of milk or a package of ground beef. Maybe our bureaucrat friends here in Ottawa can give the bonuses a break. Yeah, well, that, that, that would be nice. I mean, if you do your work and you meet your goals, okay, have at her. But, but we're not, uh, I mean, you can't even get it. EI is still running late for people. And so they haven't even fixed the Phoenix pay system. <laughs> How many billions has that thing um, been churning out? So there's all these areas of failure. Um, and then we have to worry. And I don't know, maybe you can fill me in on where this stands, because we really haven't talked about it a lot. Like, it's not like it's a part of the conversation. But there's about 150, give or take, thousand public sector employees, including the uh, workers for the CRA and then uh, members of PSAC, the, one of the biggest public sector unions. They're in negotiations that um, they have a deadline, I think, of Friday, and they could very well be walking, but they want uh, increases up to 30%. And I don't know if that's changed as far as their demands, but they want things like that. They want things like working at a home. Um, you know, where are we on that? Yeah, I mean, it's even worse than that. Uh, PSAC is pushing for up to 47% over three years. And, and listen to some of these. Who doesn't, who doesn't get a 47% raise? <laughs> for failing, for failing, rewarding yeah. failure with our tax dollars. Not to mention, uh, anywhere from 93 to 98% of all federal employees received at least one pay raise during the pandemic. Now, you know, you have these government union negotiators. They essentially have two talking points, okay? They're two talking points to try and justify these massive raises. Is Number one, they claim that government employees are falling behind. Oh, really? 312,000 federal employees received at, at least one raise during the pandemic. We just saw the federal bureaucracy balloon by 31,000 new employees over the last two years. The cost of the bureaucracy has increased by 31% over the last yeah. two years. $559 million in bonuses. Alex, if that's getting left behind, then I don't know what getting ahead is because these employees are doing just fine. Now, their second line of argument is that they need these massive raises in compensation, up to 47% over three years because of inflation. But you know why that doesn't pass the sniff test? Look at some of the non-wage benefits they're pushing for. They want paid leave 
up to two weeks every, or mm-hmm. sorry, up to 75 hours every year. They want, um, they want uh, bigger uh, shift premiums. They want all overtime paid at double time. They want better vacation pay. So my question then is this. What does better vacation and more time off have to do with the price of chicken? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, and and so do you foresee? And I don't get the sense that they're close. Uh, so we could very well uh, see a walkout um, as of uh, Friday. Well, where's the picket line going to be, Alex? Is this going to be a Zoom picket line if they're all working from home? It's true. That's true. Uh, nonetheless, look, I mean, um, MPs got uh, three raises during the pandemic. They just awarded themselves a fourth raise on April 1st. It's funny. They all have our back, but they didn't say no to a, a raise, their fourth raise. Um, again, I think for a lot of people, it's not going to sit real well, because um, if you have our back and you're reading the room, uh, why are you getting a fourth raise? It, it's so off script for them um, because they do make a fairly good living because guess if you're an MP and certainly sitting in cabinet, you're not paying for transportation. You're not paying for lodgings in Ottawa. There's a lot of things that come with that. Um, and, and again, I get one raise, but four in two years. Well, and, and, and a backbencher is now making a backbench member of parliament. Their base salary is now above one hundred ninety four thousand dollars. Right? Like that's so crazy. I'm paying Mark Garrison to be lippy on Twitter. Like, what does that guy yeah. do? Yeah, there you go, right? And not just, not just like me and you kind of upset about this. No, no, no. We, we had a poll done by Leger, um, and, and, and 80% of Canadians oppose this pay raise. And you know what's so frustrating, too? Like, this is not a partisan thing. They're all in this exactly. together. They say mm-hmm. we're all in this together. What they mean is that us political parties are all in this together on the gravy train because I haven't heard liberal MPs say anything about this publicly. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard new Democrat None MPs oppose this publicly. And I haven't heard conservative MPs no. oppose this publicly. So who's sticking up for the taxpayer right now in Ottawa? That's my question. Yeah, and it is seriously off-brand, I think, for the conservatives, but it's really off-brand for a guy like Jagmeet Singh. Like, stand with the people. Like, you're the guy saying, I'll stand with the people. Like, it is off-brand. Uh, maybe they didn't think that this was going to get uh, caught, but it does. And I think this is why it makes people so cynical. Like, you know, the fact that I think 54% of your check is gone and all these different taxes, revenue tools, whatever nifty name they make up for it. But I think this is why people are just like, really? Uh, I work really hard. I get nothing in return. And, and, and frankly, why, why should I care anymore? I think that it leads to a lot of the division we're seeing. Well, they're supposed to be our public servants, right? Both the politicians and the government employees. But these days, with all the taxes that we pay and the very, very subpar services that we get from our government, Mm. it kind of starts to feel like we're working to pay their salaries, right? It kind of feels like they forget the proper role of the relationship here. Now, I just want to dig up one more nugget from this parliamentary budget officer report for your listeners here. He looked at the average compensation that we're paying government employees in Ottawa, it's $125,000 a year. $125,000 in compensation is the average comp for a bureaucrat in Ottawa. You know, the average salary last fall for Canadians was around $60,000. So half Mm. of what these bureaucrats are pulling in in compensation. Are they hiring? Oh, that's a stupid question. (laughs) Yeah, of course they're hiring. I should mention, I'm I'm running out of time, I should mention... um, the public sector is a massive voting block, so it's not really in the interest of the Liberals to get rid of the extra 31%. So I suspect they'll, they'll ultimately get what they want, because who doesn't want that vote? 
I got to let you go there. We'll talk again for sure. Thanks, Alex. I want to talk about why an Ontario police officer convicted of raping a woman in 2017, a guy previously convicted of drug trafficking, forging documents. How is that guy still collecting a paycheck eight years later? A paycheck that puts him on the sunshine list earning $121,000 a year? Well, because he can. Um, you might recall that the Ford government promised to change this. And in 2019, they passed a law that makes it easier to fire bad cops or suspend them without pay. And yet we've got uh, a convicted cop, Jason Riemann, uh, um, who's still collecting pay. Because four years later, the Ford government hasn't bothered to proclaim the bill, you know, declare the law and its intention. Apparently, they just need to talk to a few more people. This is a cop who raped a woman, passed out. Because he could, and because he wanted to teach her a lesson. His boss is beyond frustrated because here's a guy pay- making 121000 bucks a year to sit at home and, you know, kills part of his budget. So why is this happening four years later? I want to bring Alec Mukherjee into this conversation, former chair of the Toronto Police Service Board. Good to have you. Uh, glad to be here, Alex. Uh, glad to be here. This is one of those issues that certainly it doesn't matter what police force we're talking about. This is an issue when we hot find or hear about an officer who is charged with something pretty serious and then they are able to sit on payroll, um, you know, because we've got this presumption of innocence and, and yet it can stretch out for years and years and years and we just can't do anything about it. And it's, it's very, very frustrating for, for people. So what, what is the complication of why we haven't been able to get this done sooner? I will put it down to lack of political will, because this has been an old issue. I um, left the police service board eight years ago, and we were talking about the need for giving the ability to suspend police officers without pay when they had committed something very serious, like the instances you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So it's an old um, demand by police service boards and police chiefs. I know that the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police made a proposal way back then, when I was the chair of the board, eight years ago. Yeah. And there has been no political will, and Premier Ford did make changes to the Police Service Act, but for reasons that are not known to anybody, uh, the act has not been proclaimed. But to my best knowledge, even But it doesn't the, take four years to proclaim a law. This to me sounds like they just they got the headline they wanted and then just put the report down and uh, thought we'll get we'll that, get to that, it in four years, I is, guess. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. The the legislation has been approved um, by the legislature. Uh, all it needs is to be proclaimed. And you um, know it, it it's not the only police. I mean, there are. I don't. I don't know if we would have this kind of data. Certainly, you might back eight years ago. But I mean, do we have numbers of how many police officers, on average, are on in this kind of situation where they're getting paid to sit at home while their charges or their altercation, whatever it is, uh, works its way through the process? No, we do not have that data. But um, uh, this is a pattern that prevails not just in Ontario but across the country and uh, with some exceptions and so the so the numbers are quite significant 
across I guess the, the union sector. would argue the, the the unions would argue look we cannot have an officer accused of something and have them you know sit at home for a couple of years not getting paid so their ju their justification will be there is a presumption of innocence and if they're not going to be able to work uh, then, then we've got to pay them. But it, it, the, these officers, I guess, theoretically, they could work. They could be put on administration duty or they could be put on any kind of desk job, no? Sure. And that's exactly what uh, police services such as Toronto have been doing, that officers are suspended, um, sent home, and then they're assigned to administrative duties on the basis that if we're going to be paying you, then you may as well come and do some work, but do some work which does not cause you to be engaging with uh, members of the public and keeps the members of the public out of the harm's way from the kind of uh, actions that you have engaged in. Um, but that's not a, you see, my problem is that we have a disciplinary system which is um, obsolete. In no other profession in no other sector do you have this elaborate system of disciplinary hearings and you know the police association and through and the police officers accused through the association have access to very high priced criminal lawyers but what we are dealing with is not criminal but labor relations issues in any other job if your boss found that you had engaged in some very serious potential wrong, the boss will take some action and you have access to grievances and arbitrations and so on. Only with uniformed police officers, the police chief or the board do not have that authority. They deal with the civilian staff of the police services uh, under conventional labor relations processes. And so you have got two things. One is police officers who are criminally charged. And you have police officers who are charged under the Police Services Act, which is a bigger number and often for serious offenses. And they can stay home or be assigned to um, symbolic administrative work and get paid. And the matter can drag on for yeah. a long time. Your like example of, a decade. of somebody yeah, yeah. from 2017 who is now on the mm -hmm. sunshine list, is a great example. Mm -hmm. It is not in the public interest. So police chiefs and police boards have been after the government, not just the Ford government, but before, asking for reforms to the disciplinary system. And there is no political will. There has not been political will to really bring the disciplinary system into the modern era. Just quickly before I let you go, uh, Alec, um, I know this is very frustrating to the upper management of the police because, I mean, once you have a staff member that's off on leave, it's not like you can really hire someone else because that's a whole salary now sitting at home on their couch. Um, once they get that, I mean, the, the, the uh, solicitor generals are using the spin that they've got to talk to a few more and consult with a few more people, which I don't buy for a second. How quickly could they get this thing done and get it implemented as actual law? They, they could proclaim the law tomorrow. <laughs>